This is the Aloha Friday Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Hawaii Talks. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Hawaii's experience with COVID-19 has taken a turn, with cases now rising past a previously unimaginable 200 per day. We've had officials pleading with the public all week. On Oahu, beach parks are closing again at midnight. Other restrictions are back to try to contain this virus. More than half of Hawaii's restaurants, meanwhile, never reopened after the first COVID shutdown in March. Many that did are still on their knees. I thought we'd check in again with Greg Maples, chair of the Hawaii Restaurant Association, about harrowing challenges facing the dining industry. I sent an email to the governor and to lieutenant governor when there was talk of them wanting to roll back dining rooms. First of all, there's no data that says that there's any reason to close dining rooms again. All the clustering data is happening at other places. And so my plea to them was first, take a laser approach when it comes to dealing with COVID and not a shotgun approach. But the other thing I put in there is if the government makes the decision to close an industry, they in turn have the responsibility to somehow fund that industry to help those people. You know, I feel so desperately for the bars to close for three weeks. You then are an owner that has to turn to your employee and say, I can't pay you for three weeks. It's not enough time to go get unemployment. It's now less than $600. You put these businesses in a tremendously tough spot. I think what happened is a lot of restaurants took that PPP money thinking that it was going to really save them. We opened the restaurants, we opened dining, and then we came in, you know, probably the average restaurant is doing here between 35 and 40% of the sales they used to. Of course, their cost structure is exactly the same. They're 100% rent. They still have to pay all their taxes and all of that. And that will continue because let's be, let's be really honest about this. If we opened up tourism today, it's not like there's going to be a line on the mainland to get to Hawaii. You know, all the, all the consumer sentiment and all the, the studies that are done show that people aren't too excited about getting on the plane and traveling. They're not ready to do all that yet. So there's, it's not like we're going to be overflowed with tons of, of tourism. You know, I heard one official say, we should just hunker down and wait until the vaccine comes. You know, that is really telling because anybody who has a full-time job that's still getting 100% of their pay, absolutely, that's a great idea. But for the rest of us who are feeling it and, you know, are, are taking pay cuts and are losing their businesses, that's not an acceptable answer. Every time they push back that date, 10% of the businesses just close the doors and go away. And I say this all the time. One of my biggest concerns is that at the end of the day, with all the closings, we're going to lose so much of our food culture that makes us who we are. When I went to L&L yesterday, I had my favorite and I thought to myself, can you imagine if all the mom and pops had to go? We're just losing so much culture because it's easier for large chain restaurants to be able to survive. And there's nothing wrong with that. But where are you going to get your lemon chicken, right? Yes. You know, look, the bottom line is we look into the future. We're hopeful that next in 2021, our sales are going to be 60% of what they were in, in the past. That's, that's what, so we're, we're looking at a 40% reduction. So if you, if you think 2021 is going to be a 40% reduction, you have to then mirror that into your organization, into your cost controls, right? You have to. So that's where all of this is coming from, is, is looking into the future and saying, you know what, our best case scenario is we're going to do about 60% of our business next year. 
we've had so many restaurants, so many businesses that have just had to close. If you're a business owner, every day you're just not sure if you're going to be in business at the end of the week. Number one, can I pay my bills? Number two, is the government going to react to something and close me down? That's a tough environment to live in. Greg Maples, chair of the Hawaii Restaurant Association, is also manager of Pounders Restaurant at the Polynesian Cultural Center. survival is paramount in the restaurant business today and probably will be for years to come. As customers, diners, we have to ask what kind of eating out is going to be left? I got three particular chefs together on Zoom because they know the food network here. The farmers, suppliers, fellow chefs, on up. These three will help determine whether we come out of this with some kind of cuisine, with food that aspires to something. Chef Alan Wong's award-winning establishment on King Street has been called Wong University by young chefs nurtured there. Chef Chris Kajioka's jewel, Senya, brought lots of national attention when it opened about nearly maybe five years ago. He was set to open two new venues this past spring, including Mirokaimu Ki. Straight-talking chef, restaurateur Roy Yamaguchi is doing dine-in and takeout at Goen, his place in Kailua, and he's doing the same at his flagship restaurant, Roy's, in Hawaii Kai. When we had our takeout, I mean, we've been here for a long time, so, you know, we had a pretty viable takeout business. And uh, when we started our dine-in, you know, a lot of our guests that were doing a takeout moved into dining in. We had a pretty robust dine-in, and then our takeout sales fell. So hopefully, um, you know, that's going to work, but, you know, I mean, you never know. You know, everybody has a different business model and everybody tries to do things differently to be unique, to find their position, you know, on a daily basis. So I can't speak for anybody else's operation, but that's what we're planning on doing. You know, the future doesn't seem too rosy, but hey, we're still, you know, able to do what we love to do, so. Alan? I agree with Roy. We do both takeout and dine-in. And uh, as soon as the, uh, the cases became triple digits. We noticed that uh, people were canceling their reservations for dine-in and they were still coming to pick up takeout. So we try to provide things that they would be eating at home, whether it's a, a meal that's prepared and boxed up or that they could heat up like maybe a, a quart of beef stew or something, poi stew or something like that. So we've been doing that kind of thing as well as selling some uh, farmer's uh, produce you know, things from Whole Farms, Peterson Eggs, whatever we can uh, get that the customers want. So we've been doing that. And those are some of the ideas that have come out in that Brookings Institution suggestion box, for yeah. example, expanding to groceries. I, I think the uh, support for the local farmers and producers has been great. And what people don't talk about often is that the food supply will change as the restaurants change, meaning restaurants buy what the farmers grow. We may see one farmer after another start to shut down 
as you see the restaurants shut down because of these uh, sanctions that we have to live with. Cash flow is king. You got cash to weather this storm, you'll be okay. Cash in the form of just cash or having somebody with deep pockets as an investor or something like that. Because at some point, these small mom and pop restaurants will run out of money. Just assume that almost every restaurant almost is losing money. And so you're trying to stop the bleeding from being as much as it could be. And um, every, everything like another shutdown, I think will, will hurt the restaurant industry a little bit more. And you'll see a lot more closing. It also coincides with this unemployment running out, the $600. It also coincides with, you know, rents being uh, coming up and mortgages coming up. And uh, that, that perfect storm is about to happen economically. Chris. You know, I, I guess we're kind of in survival mode. You know, we're thinking definitely more out of the box about things that we can do. You know, like Roy and Alan said, just getting cash flow, getting revenue. We still have managers who are on with us. You know, we're still taking care of medical for people. We also have cooler full of food, you know. And I shut down Miro last week because of the rising cases. We were fortunate to be very busy the first two months, but you know, that also comes with we're, we're a lot more exposed than, than most people uh, because we have a lot of people coming in. So I didn't feel comfortable. Neither did a few of my prep cooks who, you know, live with their grandparents, you know? So that was a pretty easy decision, but is it, is it going to be harder to rebound this time? I think it is. We basically were trying to open in March and then we officially opened in June. So, you know, we tried to save as much cash as possible because it looked like it was trending this way. And thankfully we were able to save some money, but I've never done takeout before, but you kind of have to do it and hope that people support you. The uncertainty of everything is what's, what's really stressful, I think. Roy, are you talking with your landlord? What, what are those kind of negotiations like? You have to understand that, you know, everybody's in the same boat. The landlords have, you know, banks that they deal with. They have lenders they deal with, private equities maybe that they deal with. You know, everybody has to, I guess, agree on a plan to make sure that, you know, everyone survives, meaning that I want to make sure that I take care of the landlord as much as I can take care of them. And at the same time, you know, you know, look at the long run and say, hey, listen, at the end of the day, you know, if I get through this and if you get through this, financially, it's not going to be the same for both of us, but hopefully five years from today, 10 years from today, maybe, you know, you'll be whole. Alan, we're going to have to figure out how to live with COVID. What are restaurants going to be like? Oh my goodness, uh, that's the crystal ball, right? We're in a funny time where, you know, half the people say, open up, we're going to close, we're going to shut down if you keep on doing this to us. And then the other half, maybe more than half, is afraid to come out and dine out. You know, they just don't want to put themselves at risk and you have to respect that. You know, what they say out on the East Coast is three out of four restaurants will close during this time. That might be true. Either they cannot weather this storm or they don't want to anymore. The last time I saw you, you had a bag of marungai on your desk. I mean, do you think that super healthy food could be a niche for us? I see that happening. You know, with our takeout, we make something as simple as a beet bone broth. The gelatin, the collagen that's in it is actually good for you. And a lot of people don't know about it, but there's a, there's a bunch that do know things that are vegetarian. People are starting to buy more of that. Chris, what is living with COVID going to be like? Like I said, it's the stress of not knowing. I mean, we're doing whatever we can right now to just make some money. You know, that's different. That's, that's, that's a different goal for me, for sure. You know, um, normally we want to create 
a delicious meal, show great hospitality, create an experience. Uh, now we're trying to express that through a takeout box. It's a lot harder to show our passion through that, you know? And I think, you know, Chef Roy, Chef Allen, you know, that's what sets them apart is that there's integrity, there's thoughtfulness of product, there's thoughtfulness of how you train your cooks and, and treat your employees. It's hard to show that through a takeout box. You know, they have great reputations. Obviously me and a bunch of my young friends, we're trying to build that reputation, but it's, it's hard. To be honest with you, I, I just more stress out about, you know, if my son gets it. At the end of the day, a vaccine is the key. I mean, I mean, that's just it. Unless every individual feels safe about going out, you know, things aren't going to change. Alan, you were talking about the ripple effect of farmers. I think as a whole, the entire planet has done a really, really good job of elevating the food supply, the quality of the ingredients. If I'm going to predict, you know, I think some of that will disappear. I think the big winners will be the big box people and the people that have chain restaurants and a, and a lot of money behind them. And so fast foods will win. All of these cheaper foods, uh, these ingredients will be more in demand because as people have a hard time paying for their rent, their mortgage, and their bills, well, they have no choice. They're going to have to look for cheaper ingredients to buy at the store to cook at home. So I, I predict that's going to happen. The best thing you can do is, if you can, support your local farmer. Buy their stuff, as hard as mm -hmm. it might be, because it might be more expensive than the imported stuff. Okay, any, <clears throat> any other words of advice? Here's one that people don't talk about. Uh, for restaurants that are struggling especially, ask the uh, what if questions. What if this happens? What am I going to do? What if this happens? What am I going to do? And uh, I'm going to bring up the big uh, B word, bankruptcy. It doesn't hurt at this time to go seek advice and seek out all your options. Just because you see a bankruptcy attorney doesn't mean that you're going to file bankruptcy. All you're doing is just getting more facts. And you just become a little bit more aware of what your real options are when you deal with your landlord. As long as you keep asking those what ifs. What if I can't do it? Your worst case scenario is you say you're going to close and you have all this food, you got all these vendors, you got to pay, you got the employees that you got to pay their last paycheck and you're, you're looking at this, this amount of, of uh, money that you owe, which is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. What are your options? Just check out your options, you know, talk to a lot of people, ask your what ifs and seek advice. You had so much support, Chris, for opening in Kaimuki. What, what's your strategy for making the nut through this? I think Chef Allen is right. Uh, knowing is having as much info uh, at your disposal, making the right decision in your head versus your heart sometimes I think is better. Um, you know, I think a lot of people want to try to bleed through it, and if they're not able to, they just lengthen it and make it worse. Obviously, the employees are first, but also too, you know, you don't want to be in a position where your vendors aren't going to get paid, your employees you know, not going to be able to cash your last check. I never want to be in that position. You know, I'd rather admit that I can't make it than go through that. Chef Chris Katioka says his landlords and investors are sticking with him so far. Senia is doing curbside pickup. Check Instagram for the latest on Miro Kaimuki.
get to the nitty-gritty of what daily decisions are like for restaurant owners, Chef Beverly Gannon's one of the original Hawaii regional cuisine chefs. She owns and operates Hali'i Miley General Store and Gannon's, both on Maui. 33 years, great restaurant business. I asked her to describe what exactly restaurant owners are facing. In all this insurance that we've paid for 30 years and never used, and now with our business being interrupted, oh no, there's a, there's a fine print right here that we don't cover pandemics. You know, who the hell ever really? thought that? Would, yeah. And guess what? And they want us to keep paying our workman's comp insurance. We're not open. I don't have any workers. Oh, but you need to pay that insurance and you need to pay this insurance and you need to pay that. And I understand the trickle down. They have to pay their bills. They have to pay this. But over the 30 years, I've probably paid in the millions of dollars in insurance. There is no help. I mean, there is no help out there. I've paid rent at Haleem Miley General Store for 33 years. On time, 33 years. And my landlords are asking me how I can pay my rent while I'm closed. After 33 years, I ask if I could just, from the day I close to the day I reopen, forgive my rent. It gives me a huge possibility of reopening. They don't get it. Oh man, I employ it. Highly, highly, that's 60 people who I employ there, 60 or 70. We had a fire. <laughs> this is funny. It's not really funny, but there was a big fire on Maui and it was just below the general store. And I looked at my husband and I said, you know what? I wish the wind would change direction because if my restaurant burned down, they would have to pay me business interruption insurance. You know, what was business like uh, before? So business pre-COVID was absolutely stunning. We would all talk and go, oh my God, this is so good. It's so busy. We can't find any help. Everybody's working double time because you'd put an ad in the paper and nobody would answer. Our unemployment oh. on this island was like 2%. 18, 19, and the first, those first couple of months of 20, we were kind of back at it. You know, it took my business close to nine years to get back from the last recession. So March 18th at seven o'clock, we closed our doors and, you know, we haven't been open since, except for a few weeks ago, we decided to start doing little meal kits. What is your income gone from what to what? On the good months, the restaurants, it could be anywhere from 200000 a month to 350000 a month. June, I did $4,000 in business. So I've had no income. And like today, I just had a, a waiter. He mm -hmm. worked for me 19 years. He just stopped by and said, he's moving back to the mainland. Rebecca and I stood there and we cried. It was like, oh my God, you're kidding. Because he was such a good waiter and he mm. was such a great guy. And he was part of the family. Are you starting to hear people are leaving then? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We're different than Oahu because you've got a population there, right? when those hotels aren't open and all our winter birds aren't here, you know, we have 150,000 people on this island. Us in the restaurant business, I don't know if you've heard, you know, we formed this Maui restaurant hui, mainly so we could cry on each other's shoulders and try and get it out to people that 
in our business, people think you're making money hand over fist. You're really not. 95 cents of every dollar we make goes out the door. So restaurants, if they're lucky, can net 5%. People don't uh, realize the margins are so slim. Nobody does. They really don't. And then tack on that, we're policemen now. If somebody shows up at the door and they refuse to put on a mask, we have to turn them away. And then they're pissed. And then they'll never come back to our restaurant when we open up again. You know what, Bev? The Brookings Institution came up with these recommendations to try to help the restaurant industry. I wonder if I could just run some of them by you and you tell me how viable they might sure. be. Okay. They say that restaurants are going to have to develop takeout and delivery. And they recognize that a lot of restaurants, oh, delivery, great, but it's so expensive. Some of these apps no, do some I'm not delivery. a takeout restaurant. That's not what I do. I'm not going to compromise my food and neither are most of the other finer restaurants on Maui. You put food in a box and deliver it. I've done it. I stopped doing it. I stopped doing takeout because you know what? People then called and said, well, our fish was overcooked. And this wasn't right. That's not what I'm in the business. I'm in the business of serving you food, beautifully put on a plate, putting it in front of you, and you paying me for that. Another one of the Brookings ideas was restaurants maybe could like expand what they do, like go into a little grocery type of retail. And a restaurant is a specific kind of business. Catering with food is a specific kind of business packaging of food and going into a retail store is a completely different business. Packaging stuff and putting it in the stores, you can't make any money doing that. We make our money on our bars. My bar at Hilly Miley General Store is full almost every night with people coming and sitting and having dinner and talking to the bartender. We are an entertainment business. We are what you do on special occasions, on graduations, on, you know, I go out all the time, you know, and part of the experience of that dining experience is your interaction with everybody. You know, I, we've been out a few times and some of the places are doing a great job with the tables apart, but I look at it and I go, oh my God, this restaurant can only seat 30 people at a time, you know, and I know what it costs them to, to keep those doors open. But I thought, if I open up, I'm going to take some of their business away. We're talking to a lot of people. And yeah. nobody really has come up with, even the bigger chefs, the Danny Myers, the Let Us Entertain You group, nobody's figured it out. The rules that are going to be put on us are going to make this one of the most difficult businesses to be in. We want to do things right. But I have to tell you, the rules for us change almost daily. And all we want to do is get back to work and bring back our entertainment world of dining. When you have to wear a mask when you walk through the restaurant, what happens if, like at Holy Miley, I can have 10 tables of people that know each other. They can't go up to each other and say hello and give them a hug. Or It's crazy. I know how that dining room is. <laughs> it's a party. One of the things I feel really bad about is it being shut down you know I have to protect every penny I mean so part of me feels bad that I haven't done anything for the community during this I thought the other day I thought well you know what for Thanksgiving say we're going to open one day and and it may be not even Thanksgiving it may be someday soon and just do a big Thanksgiving dinner 
and feed as many people as we can feed until we don't have any more food. Don't make me cry. No, I'm t I, I cry a lot. And you know, I'm not a crier. I had a day three days ago where I just kind of sat down and I was, my eyes were welling up with tears and I go, I can't let this beat me, but I don't know. I don't know what to do. You know, and none of us do. How's this going to make sense for you? I mean, you know, I, I've gone in circles on how to reopen, when to reopen, what to do. And really what I figured is as soon as the hotels open, is waiting 30 days to make sure that we don't get spikes. I can't do it until I figure it out and know that it's going to be successful. You know, and none of us do. How's this going to make sense for you? I've gone in circles on how to reopen, when to reopen, what to do. And really what I figured is as soon as the hotels open, is waiting 30 days to make sure that we don't get spikes. I can't do it until I figure it out and know that it's going to be successful. Chef Bev Gannon of Maui. Ever heard of art de vivre, the art of living? Bev was getting at how much restaurants are, are a part of that art. We're listening to Kayla Beamer, known today as a slack key master. Selections we're featuring today are from his first album, The Real Old Style, released in 1972. It's a landmark because of the way this Hawaiian brought two worlds so closely together. Melding sounds of Hawaii with American folk music was so popular at that time. It's clear, it's direct, and so much a part of the Hawaiian Renaissance. Hope you'll enjoy Keola Beamer knitting the show together today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hoku's Restaurant, featuring Chef Jonathan Mizukami, bringing new direction from culinary experiences across the globe, including the French Laundry in Napa Valley. Reservations at kahalaresort.com. I've been a member of Hawaii Public Radio since I graduated from my PhD work. Realized it was time to participate in this thing that I had been using. And after I got married, my wife and I realized that we're going to pay for this every year and it would be better for the station if we became sustaining members. It'd be easier for us if we became sustaining members. And it just made sense. So we just signed on and we've been sustaining members ever since. My name is Sean Steinman and I am a sustaining member of Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Ira Plato. This week on Science Friday, we know the universe will end someday, but how? Astrophysicist Katie Mack gives the scoop on the range of options from the big crunch to the dreaded vacuum decay. It would be a totally inescapable bubble of doom. Something else to worry about on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Starting this afternoon at 1. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, and Honolulu Waldorf School. Now, it's a great privilege to offer a visit to a corner of busy Oahu you've probably whizzed by and never noticed. 
We get to do this thanks to the great folks at Aliyah Bridge, one of the few homeless service providers in central Oahu. You'll meet Executive Director Nikki Winter and Outreach Providers Makanani Rivera and first, Cora Reda. We pulled off of Kamehameha Highway at Karsten Thought Bridge just outside Wahiawa, and I asked Cora Reda, Youth Outreach Case Manager, what her work is like every day. Yeah, so we go from encampment to encampment. We constantly are checking in at least once a week with these guys. We're pretty much mobile due to COVID. It's us checking in with them. What do they mainly need? Food, hygiene. Most of them we're working with already. We're working on getting their documents. Every little step, just getting a birth certificate. That's a little step maybe to us because we take it for granted, but these people don't have that. So that gives them a little bit of a sense of accomplishment. You build that, and it should. And that's what we try and work for because it builds them up. Let's try and get you doc ready. Let's get you snap. Let's get you medical coverage. They start to see that there's somebody. I mean, we could see people moving among the tents ahead. Thin man in his 30s is emerging from the path with his bicycle. He just disappears right across the bridge. Outreach case manager Makanani Rivera started up a wide red dirt pathway through what looks like sugarcane grass and kiave trees. Is there any, is there any services that we can help you with? No? Yeah. So they have, I don't know if you want to go all the way back, but they have unsheltered all the way down in the down by the water. It's an encampment. It's pretty big. I don't think there's too many people home though. You know what, tell me what people do during the day. They hustle, they panhandle, they recycle. So what do you mean by hustle? It, well, I guess they, if they have things that they want to sell, then they'll sell it. I'm not exactly sure what they do. I know that they recycle though. They hold signs at the street or on the corners by the traffic light and people give them money as they're driving by. She said they're working, so maybe there's some that work under the table. Are people kind of organized, like a community here? Kind of. It was actually a family. So Audrey's dad built this, but he passed away. He used to be in carpentry, and he had a nice setup and everything. But since he passed, I believe, early last year, if I'm not mistaken, or the year before, I guess other people just moved in. I'm not exactly sure who lives out here anymore. There are shanty-style lean-tos and ad hoc shelters of boards and tarps on the hillside here. A person could draw back their tarp, look across the valley at Karsten Thought Bridge with Kaukunahui Stream below. Oh yeah, see they took down a lot because he had a bathroom and everything set up over here. Hi, good morning, Alea Bridge. Is anybody home? The weathered bathroom doors got a brush painting with calligraphy on it. And stairs appear that lead down to the stream bed. <laughs> a cat is scratching near a gangly bicycle. There's an old motorcycle over there, a shopping cart, plastic utility tubs. Large areas are wrapped by tarps propped on lumber and sticks. One of the residents said there are about 30 people living back here. The numbers fluctuated over maybe 13 years, but it could be longer. Pretty independent for the most part. They manage on their own. They don't want to go into shelter. They don't want it. They're, they're comfortable with where they are. Um, we offer it. If they want to go into housing, we'll try to get them there. But the housing piece, you know, we got to do disability verification. It depends on how bad their disabilities are. 
Cute. I'm plucking white cats rubbing our legs here. I asked Nikki Winter, executive director of Alia Bridge, how would you describe this settlement? Oh, I don't know, I think it's a... I mean, it's, I don't know, it's heartbreaking for me, but it's, on the same note, it's kind of um, interesting to, when you see the structures and how they built it, it's living in homelessness, it, you know, a lot of people look at homeless and it comes with the stigma that, you know, they, they don't do anything or they're lazy or they're just druggies or whatever. But, you know, they live at a, a high level of vigilance, right? Because they're all constantly on the move. They have to always watch for HPD, possible sweeps coming if um, there's an enforcement with HPD. They have to think of ways to create structures to protect themselves. It's, it's heartbreaking, but on the same mode, it's, it's kind of like inspiring for me to see that, you know, our homeless community can sustain and live. And I, I think we should do more, though. I think we should definitely do more. Nikki says there are about 70 unsheltered in Wahiawa town, mostly singles and couples. Aliyah Bridge pretty much knows them all. And they haven't seen a big jump in numbers yet. Yeah, this community is really, it's really a special place. And I mean, the homeless community here in like Wahiawa and North Shore that we, in Milan that we work with, is very different from the homeless that you'll find in like Chinatown. Yeah, our homeless community, like in the North Shore areas and this area, we find that they're very much attached and drawn to the land. A lot of things we hear from our North Shore clients is that, well, you know, all we want to do is just like work the land. Eventually, that's where we want to go, you know, create agricultural programs like that where you guys can work the land and harvest what you grow and be able to go to the farmer's markets and sell it. But we don't have the capacity to do stuff like that. We don't have land and things like that. So things I like have that. no idea that that might be uh, an objective. I mean, eventually, that's what we'd like to do. If we can find some community partners that, you know, just have ag land, if we could find a way to partner and work together, um, they can get a sense of, of pride because they're, they're working the land, they're making a living for themselves. And they said, we, we're happy to work the land, we'll harvest, we'll go to the farmer's market and you know to become productive members of society and help do our part i mean eventually you know that's the program that we'd like to see come into play <laughs> oh yes nikki winter alaya bridge planning for the vulnerable in central oahu alohana kupuna kupuna kane Kupuna wahine e aloha e. <laughs> My grandfather, he's a kindly man. He lives on homestead land. And sometimes he'd sing me the songs he wrote When he was still a young man And he'd play in the real old style Would you like to get a sense of what living in the brush outside Wahia was like? Near the entrance to this settlement, up against the hillside, is Tammy's place where she stays with her partner and her dogs. Aliyah Bridge Outreach Specialist Dee Nakamura says Tammy's been there for years. She has a little oven and she bakes for them over here. No, they, they sell propane. It's a stove, two burners, and a little oven on the bottom. 
So you kind of like cut your recipes in half and bake it twice. What? Yeah, what just like all made? Made. What have you made? Like chocolate chip cookies, <laughs> uh, banana bread. <laughs> and tell me about your toilet, how you guys built it. He made a trance, but, but it's pretty big and I put tile all on the side and just number one goes inside a hole in the back, yeah? And it, but I always buy solutions, yeah? But if you go to the cleaning store, there's a thing for the smell of pee. But I never bought that expensive, so you can't buy that for me. <laughs> <laughs> and then we did just do number two somewhere else. Oh uh, yeah, like where? Where can you do number two? Here? My son lives up the road. Oh, okay. Or they go to the park, Kuala yeah. Park or Whitmore yeah. Park. Yeah, that's and then we burn our rubbish right there. It's so self-sufficient. And we get shower, we shower. Where do you shower? In the bathroom, it's big. It's big. It's like bigger than a regular bathroom. Where's the bathroom? On this end. The cover on this end. Yeah. You see this end of it? Yeah. Right here? This Got wall. Door. So basically, you know the bag you put water in and... Oh, but I boil my water. I just boil it and do it like my grandparents, one scoop at a time. <laughs> you survive out here. She's a, yeah, she's one of the main survivors. <laughs> right. Ah. And then so she cooks for everybody. She goes, I can't just. Well, cook I, I never cook, cook just for me and him. I cook for all the little young boys that come. Like, and <laughs> I know hungry. they're hungry. And they can eat like crazy. Yeah. And have chocolate chips. But cooking. but they get manners. They get they really have manners. They always, thank you. I appreciate it. You know, not like some older people. They do not have manners at all. <laughs> and I make them do chores like my sink. I got a sink for the kitchen, but my water goes into a bucket. So. I got this guy, he comes every day, empty my water for me, and yeah. <laughs> you get a little system going. Yeah, I do. And when I go buy um, like food like that, we get the wagon, they, but I never ever push it. I'm not going to be caught pushing it. <laughs> Wash clothes, we use the wagon, and I make other people do shit and stuff. But I pay them. Like a soda or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or their clothes get to be washed or something. Oh, I Tammy. love you. Thank you so much for telling yeah, us how it works. Really, this homeless people is not bad at all. You know, yeah. People, people, a lot of people out there look at them like, you know, but actually, they just don't have a house. But then for me, I you used know? to be out here with them. That's how come yeah, I'm so close yeah. with them. Oh, she never was out there with us, but she chose to be the one brought us food and take us doctor to whatever. She did that. This one. In Notre, yeah. yeah, she did. At times she would, come on, let's go to the house right now. She'd boss you around the shit I need, you know, take a regular shower and eat a regular meal. Yep, that's her. Or she'd be the one dropping us, I'm the you know, mama women's hen. things and stuff yeah. like that. She was that person. This one. All yeah. of it. She never, ever changed. As beautiful as she is, never, ever changed. And Always like this. That's why I think so. I work for yeah. a great, this is my calling. A lot of people, they, they're calling. very scared of her, yeah? A lot of people are not sure. If you mess with her, yeah, but if not, they hate me. They're jealous because <laughs> we're like this. Yeah. Yeah, she can get her way with yeah. me. But she's good people. Her. Good people. You, you guys lucky to have her on the team. For real. See, at least she's making a living she, yeah, by all that stuff she, she did before. Yeah, she don't condemn no one. Yeah, she knows how I to talk to nobody. them. Different kind of people. She she got that. Yeah. Because they yet. raised a lot of, like her, her, my mom raised a lot of boyfriend's kids. Yeah. And then now disrespectful, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> no, but I don't Who's believe. This? This is Hapa. Hi, uh, how are you? How are you? Yeah. Like, you know, when I tell them to go get gas for the generator and stuff, I try to give them money, right? And yeah. No, 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 sis. Auntie, no, I'm good. You know. Give my card out to everybody. I will. So I okay. Because I know they, they'll trust me. All right. Yeah. I love you. Yeah, trust you. I love you, babe. Thanks, Tammy. <laughs> Thank you. It's funny, yeah. She is so cool. Yeah, so out here it's like a lot of trust. Yeah, you can gain people's trust. So it's kind of good because. I've had that with them already, the connection with them. 
what family connection? Or? No, I used to be homeless for six years. Yeah. I, was, I had a house in North Shore. I took care of everybody on North Shore. Everybody could come house, and then I ended up homeless. I lost everything, and then I was homeless for six years. And I just got back on my feet again. A little bridge helped me, but I was out on the streets in Whitmore and in down North Shore for six years, homeless. So I had everything. I lost everything, and I, I'm building myself up again now. <laughs> but I've always taken care of the homeless. Like when they didn't have a place to shower and stuff, I'd bring them to my house when I did have a house. Then I ended up on the streets with them, so. <laughs> and now I'm back. <laughs> Auntie, you know, a lot of people, so many people are scared right now that they're going to lose their homes. That so tell me how it feels and how it happens. For me, it was, um, we used to raise chickens. Yeah, me and my ex-boyfriend, and something had happened where we couldn't get the chickens, we couldn't make our rents. That was our income. I was relying on him so much. We lost everything. I ended up on the street. Wait, how did that happen? Tell me about the day you moved out. Oh, it was crazy. I was in tears because it was like we built six years we were at this house. And then just to lose it, within a month, the sheriffs came and I begged them for like three more days, three more days, but they were really hard on us that we had to get out. We had to leave our dogs back because we had nowhere to take them. And then we just ended up on the streets. You were in a car? Or you... No, I was on the street street. So With what? I, a backpack and then I just would go to friends' houses. And then it just became six years into it. You learn to live like this. You're smart because you're one step ahead of everybody. You know when you're homeless, it's like you got to have a plan every day. It's an everyday plan. You don't wake up just being, okay, I'm going to go to work. You got to survive. It's a survival plan. So every day it's a survival plan when you're homeless. And you're always one step ahead of everybody. Really? Mm-hmm. Because you got to know, we're always prepared for the worst. Homeless is always prepared for the worst. Because you're at your worst. You know what I mean? So you just got to prepare to survive the worst. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I really don't know how to how to take that. Yeah. To, what, what to so like, okay, I'm gonna like for the hurricane. When I was homeless, I would have not went to a shelter. I understood when they didn't want to go because why are we gonna go? You know what I mean? Because we know how to survive out here. So I started checking all the bathrooms and like down on the north shore, I checked all the bathrooms to see if they're gonna stay open because that way I could feel like okay, okay, they can run in a bathroom if they needed to stay somewhere. You know, I was just thinking yeah. how I would think because that's how they're thinking. So I was trying to make sure all the bathrooms would stay open. They were closing the bathrooms. The bunkers were welded. I'm like, you guys, there's no way of surviving this one. So sirens went off and we stayed out till 12.30 trying to just get people to shelters. I didn't want to give up. It didn't work, but it's okay. They're survivors. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, bathrooms was number one safety for them. If anything, it would have been the bathrooms for them to be safe in if it did hit and they didn't have a shelter, the bathrooms would have been the safest place for them. Public bathroom. Tell me the struggle with the bathrooms. Oh, <laughs> the bathrooms. Oh, the bathrooms. Hey, thanks so much. Dee Nakamura will tell you the story of the bathrooms soon, a story of adventure, need, citizen action, and constant struggle. Maui now. Lauren Armstrong, Executive Director of Maui Metropolitan Planning Organization. Let us know they're looking for an artist to gather input and design some signage for a big street project. A planning group's working on making streets safer and more beautiful. 
Yeah, so the MPO is lucky to work with the Healthy Eating Active Living Coalition, and we have some funding from Hawaii Department of Health to make uh, improvements to a street in Kahului. And so we did something similar last year on Onehe'e Avenue. We worked with students, we painted bulb outs to make it safer to cross the street, help the cars slow down. And so we'd like to do something similar on Papa Avenue. And part of the process is reaching out to people in the neighborhood and you know asking them what would make it feel safer for them to walk and bike, get to the bus, things like that. So the artist will be a really important part of that process. What's the artist for? To make it beautiful, to make it represent something that's meaningful to the community. You know, we had a volunteer artist involved with the Onehe'e project, which was amazing of them to do that. But we also realized that artists deserve to be compensated just like consultants in planning and engineering. All the other folks that we work with to make these projects happen. Well, what um, so did the artists contribute to the project? Well, in that case, they worked developing the design. So once the engineers had come up with the roadway striping, then the artists took that and developed some alternative designs and representing themes that were important to the neighborhood. And actually on the day that we installed the project, they were there directing, mixing the paint colors, stenciling in, cleaning the pavement, directing the volunteers about where to paint. And so they had a really active hands-on role in creating the project. The whole idea is to try out something new and you know, doing it in a relatively low cost way that lets us evaluate the improvements and see if the county wants to make a long-term investment in making those changes. Okay, so this next project is where and what's the assignment? It's gonna be on Papa Avenue, which is a major collector road in Kahului. It passes by residential areas, goes by Lihikai School, Maui High School, it's a two-lane road, but it's got about 80 feet of right-of-way, so it has a lot of space to work with. Lauren, have you seen the bulb outs in Honolulu Chinatown? I have seen them on TV. I think that's why it's important to talk to the residents and the people just to see what their thoughts on the potential design are before it's installed. And there's whole guidebooks about it. It's very popular on the mainland. You know, cities like New York and Portland, they've done some really beautiful street art to, you know, it beautifies the neighborhood, makes people feel safer walking. It'd be fun. Could be. Lauren Armstrong, Executive Director at Maui Metropolitan Planning Organization. There's $5,000 for the artist who gets this um, award here. Applications are due to Lauren at MauiMPO.org by Friday, August 21st. going on the cultural scene here. There's another deadline extended, but not forever here. Join the Hawaii Arts Alliance Creative Network. It's free. Creatives, the Alliance wants to know your needs. They can find resources and professional development, but first, they need to know you're there. We will post a link to the Creative Network form with this program. 
and the first ever Hawaii International Film Festival HIF at Home Summerfest is streaming right now. Maybe this is the weekend you'll actually get engaged in a film. Shiro Tokiwa's First Supper is in the lineup here. Ramona Diaz's A Thousand Cuts documents the Duterte regime in the Philippines. 11 particularly strong selections of feature on Ai Weiwei as well. Check the HIF website and we'll post a link with this story. Now, who runs Hawaii? The old 808. You do. That's the point of a huge mural that popped up on King Street a few weeks ago. It's gone now, but You Run 808 was the message from nonprofit Everyone Hawaii, which teamed up with Powwow Hawaii to accomplish that mural. The goal? To spur millennials and next-gen voters into action. Hawaii's primary election day is tomorrow. If you have not mailed in your ballot, check online for ballot drop boxes. Your ballot has got to be in by 7 p.m. tomorrow. And we have key races on the line. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Rebecca Solnit, author of The Far Away Nearby and other books. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the power of stories to create and destroy. New Dimensions airs Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The exhibition, 30 Americans, features paintings by Rosiel, which combine elements of Japanese woodblock prints with current cultural references. HonoluluMuseum.org Well, that's about it for this Aloha Friday. Thank you so much for your company. You know, we love to hear from you. In fact, I heard you on this program this week. You all add so much to the show with your calls and comments. Call our top black line and leave us a message. You know we use those comments. 808-792-8217. Post comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. You can message me on Instagram if you have an idea for the show. Share programs you heard earlier via the conversation page right there on the HPR website. That's hawaiipublicradio.org. The program's produced by Lillian Zhang. She keeps us in line. Harrison Patino. <laughs> Love ya. Jason Ubai, wisely at home. Our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Noe. Till Monday, let's take care of each other. All right. Catherine Cruz is back. Happy Aloha Friday. <laughs>